welcome to the cast of Caught, where we talk about all things related to the Dark Tower series by the one and only Stephen King. I'm your co-host Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the man with the <laughs> workshop plan. I was—I should have planned this ahead. <laughs> DJ. Uh, apparently, the the person who has gone through the exercise phase and now owns a large uh, incumbent um elliptical so i am now going to be healthy I dj did at some see point. this on is it because you're not able to like go for walks like you used to be or are you just like 2021 is the year i'm working on my fitness oh no it's mostly the the first one like we haven't been able to do as much outside stuff yeah so plan for this episode we're going to kick off another kind of supersized episode with an end of the conversation of wizard and glass part two susan chapter eight beneath the peddler's moon and chapter nine sitgo and uh, because of the holiday, I kind of screwed up and forgot to post a question on the Facebook group. So I did that really quickly before we started recording. And depending on how that goes, we'll either close out the show with that or save it for the next episode, which I'm guessing is going to be the case. Because I mean, I literally <laughs> so. just posted. <laughs> so, so yeah. All right. I guess we can just dig on in. But before we do so, DJ, can you please remind our listeners of our spoiler policy, please? Like that leaky car that your next door neighbor owns who likes to peel out at stoplights and slam on the gas and leave a streak of black, gross, nasty oil across the ground. We will draw that line in the road that upsets you <laughs> and let you know that if you step in it, you're going to miss you're going to fall. You're going to fall into the spoiler zone. And that is the danger here. So that is your warning. We will tell you when that car is about ready to leave the station. All right. Awesome. So we didn't get any new iTunes reviews this week, but if you are enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes and we will read it here at this point in the show. I may not have been the right choice to enjoy an apricot beer before we started. Are you feeling a little a little feisty? I, I, a little hyphy? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I apologize in advance if I'm not as um, perky as normal. Well, I mean, this could be a long night for you because after this, we're recording a bonus episode. Oh, that's fine. I'll just regale you guys with uh, fun facts about where eels come from. <laughs> well, I'm here. The outline is here. We'll get through this together. <laughs> the three of us will somehow make it through. <laughs> All right. Where did we leave off last episode? So I believe, didn't they just finish uh, sort of like vesting those guys in the bar and then uh, sending off their carrier pigeon? To let them know that nothing new had really happened? Yeah. Well, we had Susan and, and Roland were on. They, like, finally met up again for the first time. And they had the whole conversation about how there were too many horses in the area. And then, and that probably her dad was murdered as a part of the conspiracy that's going on in Hanbury. Yeah. And Cuthbert and Elaine found the hair on Roland and now they're really worried because obviously he's got something going on the side and that's why he's not been acting like himself for a while. Yep, and then DePape was sent back in to track the guy's path through the small yeah. towns and mm -hmm. like we, we leave that one hanging. Yes, uh, yes, 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 yes. Until now where we pick it back up. Yep, so we uh, we find him basically wandering from town to town until he rolls into this uh, kind of uh, older town that used to be like a mining town but has a bunch of abandoned mines and we sort of get this strange backstory about how 
that's where they, you know, like maybe 20 miles away, they got their tattoos of the coffins Mm -hmm. on their hands and that they had some sort of uh, part in the mine's demise and the uh, closing of a bunch of businesses that were associated with the mines. And specifically, they helped some corporation take over all these freehold mines. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wasn't, because they don't really, Stephen King doesn't really explain what happened. You sort of get this vague, um, almost uh, like they're mercenaries that were oh, hired. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And like sent to basically uh, uh, harass these people or and or, you know, finish them off uh, so that these minds become one. But then the weird thing is, is that it sounds as though the minds are sort of like almost a little bit abandoned and there's peppered holes throughout the area. And that the one group that's left, their miners live in the town and like. They shop at the company store, and mm-hmm. they're living this sort of oppressed life. Yeah. And, and even the bar, like, uh, there's people that are, like, kind of half drinking and half on the devil weed and, you know, toothless, tootsie, you know, wandering around the front of the bar. It, <laughs> it's just a, a really sad bit and also kind of a strange bit. But it's a good history of the of the coffin hunters and like what they were up to. Mm-hmm. So basically he rolls into this bar and he's kind of been like going from town to town trying to find the path of these guys. And because they're a not drinking, b wearing nicer clothes than expected and c sort of have like um an air and a voice about them that is easily sp- spotable. Every town has pegged them as a person of note and it's pretty easy it sounds like for him to continue to backtrack where they've come from uh, every bar recognizes him because they're not drinking and, and so on and he usually has to drop some hints when he gets there but this time he rolls into the bar and the patron there having a few drinks is uh sort of like just bar talking you know explaining stuff and he dives into this well maybe times aren't as bad as they as they look and like things might be getting better. Cause I saw some, you know, fine gentlemen roll into this place and even bought one of sarsaparilla and this, this like a toothless lady down the bar is like, you wouldn't know a gentleman from a turd. <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of insults him. And, and like he, he weirdly and sort of proudly takes his drink and dumps it down her, her skirt. And this like turns into a thing where at first, like, the crowd you can tell is like a working class crowd and they sort of like go with the flow and are kind of laughing about it until she turns sour to it. And then she beats the crap out of him, just bloodies him up and sends him out the door. And, and what I want to back up on is DePape, Like there's this whole moment before he even gets into the bar where he's talking about internally how mm-hmm. irritated he is with the boys. Yeah. What he wants to do to him. A lot of peeing. <laughs> Yeah, mostly it's what face he wants to do. peeing. That's he wants like to pee on them he until he runs the out. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, uh, and, and then he's also like, basically like uh, thinking about his lady that he's been saving up for and she's not there. So he wants to get all of his, um, I don't know, even frustrations at that out on these, these kids. Yeah. And, and so back to the bar, this guy gets tossed out and he already has sort of the look of like some devil weed usage and the pape basically is like, Hey, old timer, I believe you. <laughs> hey buddy, you want to, you want to tell me about this? And the old timer is like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, what do you got? What's in it for me? 
you, you want to make a bargain? And the pape's like, yeah, well, we'll bargain after you tell me your information and how valuable it is. And they have a little bit of a standoff for a bit. And then the old man ends up basically explaining to him after the pape, uh, you know, uh, rough, ruffles him up a little bit with his uh, strong hands that these kids uh, definitely had the face of, you know, the Arthur line and, you know, and, and the pape's confused because he doesn't know which of the kids he's talking about. And the old man kind of alludes to the fact that it's um, Will Dearborn, but he, he mispronounces Dearborn, but it's close enough that the pape picks it out and he says, all right, that metal I promised you, you know, gold or silver, actually it's going to be lead. And he just <laughs> Such a great Western line. It's so good. And you're like, whoa. And, and so the, the guy, the old man goes down. The pape kind of wanders off happy that he can end this process of, of searching. Yeah. We, we get the name of Roland's dad mentioned here, which is fairly important. Mm-hmm. And then as he's about to like camp for the night before he heads out back to town, he sees a fairly nice looking pigeon. Yeah. And he decides that, that, that it's probably someone's pet and now it's going to be his dinner. And he tries to shoot at it, misses and the bird flies off, and uh, you know, since it's part of this chapter, I, I can not have to worry about foreshadowing. That pigeon is the one and only that carries messages back and forth between. Mm-hmm. So, you've got three stars here, Rachel. Uh, what did I, I miss? Mean, I think you covered most of it, but I do think because I love Stephen King's writing and he's his sense of humor, so it's worth noting that this little town that DePape is in is called Ritzy, which is such a great sort of western name. And if you want to know anything about what this town is like, the description is just so good here. You know, if you think back to when Susan is looking around in Hambury and she's talking about the rolling hills being the shape of a woman's hip, and it's all like very beautiful. Whereas this place, the way he describes it, and some of this just, I think, tells you a little bit about DePape and the way he sees the world, but also it does do a really good job of, of describing how sort of downtrodden and sad this place is. He describes it as an ugly lowered head between a pair of huge shrugged shoulders the foothills which it just paints <laughs> such a great picture we talked a little bit about the we got some backstory of back, the big coffin hunters and you know he wants his urine soaked revenge all that stuff but the other <laughs> thing here that i think is worth noting is that de pape as he's recalling this kind of it occurs to him that he can't quite say how long it's been since they were there because time time has grown soft and the world has moved on and it's this reminder despite the fact that we've just spent all this time in this very like bucolic almost for for these you know for for these books kind of paradise in hambury it's it, it can be easy to forget that some of the sort of existential things that are happening later in the books are already beginning to take place at this point in our current day in midworld the world moving on is you know a fact and you can see the evidence of it everywhere mm-hmm. and so this is just kind of a reminder that even at this point whatever's happening with the tower whatever's happening with the world has already begun and uh yeah yeah, so okay. that I so I thought that was interesting. And finally, by the end of the section, 
you know, there, this this whole these chapters we're going to be going through, it's just a series of like ticking clocks. And this one kind of with the pape has sort of been on hold. You know, we've been sort of in a holding pattern, like what is going to happen with this? And now like this clock has started ticking again, because by the end of this chapter, the pape knows he doesn't just know that these kids are more than they seem to be, but he knows that one of them is the son of Stephen Deshane, which is huge information. Mm hmm. Yeah, so when you describe the clock, I almost close my eyes and imagine like the the twenty four thing. Oh, for do. sure! It's like, doo -doo, doo -doo, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and, like, this, that's a perfect way you could. If you were gonna do like a parody, you could totally mash these things up with the twenty. This this specific chapter, these chapters we're covering, and the twenty four thing because it totally is that. <laughs> oh my god! Great call. <laughs> All right, so then we, we basically cut back to uh, the gang hanging around, and they are deciding that they both, like, kind of out of curiosity and sort of as an excuse out of their counting requirements, going to go visit the Thinny. Mm -hmm. And so they all sort of, like, head out that direction, and Roland's companions are basically worried that Roland would fall into the trap of falling in love with and trying to court Susan as as they're trying to also accomplish this task and they're kind of a little relieved because they they realize that they haven't seen any long hairs on his clothing yeah and at least for the moment <laughs> yeah. there's no telltale signs that roland is completely smitten and not thinking about the thing that they have in front of him so as, as they kind of head out that way like stephen king paints is sort of weird almost sexual but also sort of evil and dangerous a picture of the thinny and of this boxed canyon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he almost, I believe he uses a uh, uh, genital description. Yeah. He's, I think he says it looks like a vagina. Right? Yeah. Like I think, yeah, exactly. The, like, uh -huh, uh -huh. and so like you get this picture, uh, not only like, does it, when he describes it, the thinny doesn't just um, make a noise. It, it's like an accumulative tearing at your soul almost. Like the sound of it repeating over and over again slowly starts to tear at you to the point where it sort of, um, I don't know, drives you a little bit crazy. And, and so the gang kind of heads out that direction and they see like the thinny pull in a bird. Yeah. I almost so I, I want to focus on this for just a second and ask you, Especially with what we'll see with Rhea coming up, like the description of the thinny, it's kind of a Tommyknockers feel where this thing is like speaking to people, but also mm. sort of absorbing them. So with the birds, they sort of get lulled in and then the the thinny eats them or takes them in. I don't know what it does to them exactly. Consumes but with them. Roland and the gang, like they almost start to hear voices, their own voices and their father's voices talking to them. And it's interesting when you think about it that Elaine is the one that is most affected yeah. by the thinny to the point where he almost steps too close to the edge of the canyon and, mm -hmm. and falls in. And the reason I say that is because if we go to the Tommyknockers description, that's sort of like a psychic control power slash right. um, suction of your own will and, and essence as mm -hmm. it's like psychically talking to you. And the one who is most open to that sort of thing is the one that is most affected in this mm -hmm. group. So, and, and later on too, when we talk about the crystal, like you'll, you'll sort of get the same feeling of that. Like, Oh, you want some power, some interesting things or some feel goods. No problem. Just give me a little bit of your juice. 
Yeah. Let me let me read this quote in this section. So this is the Thinny speaking to Roland. Jump in and let these cares cease. There is no love of girls to worry here. No mourning of lost mothers to weigh your child's heart. Only the hum of the growing cavity in the center of the universe. Only the punky sweetness of rotting flesh. Come, gunslinger. Be part of the thinny. So creepy. I love it. I love it. It, it, Yeah, I I was actually, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about was the thinny because it seems so different from the one that we're seeing in camp. So is it because it's already eaten everything? Or it, like, so know. this one's like hungry and I don't know if young is the right term, but it's like maybe a little fresher because the description we've gotten of this thinny is that it's sort of like creeped in over time mm-hmm. and that they've started traditions around it and so on, like the burning of the of the brush right. at the mouth of the thinny to keep the cows out and so on. Yeah. But like those are recent events, whereas like in Oklahoma, it sort of feels as though that thinny's been hanging out there for a millennia or however long since the plague basically and yeah. hasn't had you know it hasn't been really active anymore well i mean i guess it, it begs the question of like what ex- i always thought of a thinny as being just sort of an unnatural but natural phenomenon like it's just a, a like literally a thinness between worlds right that and the one that in kansas feels almost like quicksand mm-hmm. this one seems menacing though so this like- one feels like not only does it feel menacing, it feels like it has agency. Yes, you know? yes, and that's what drove me to the Tommyknockers description, mm-hmm. and also maybe the explanation for the benign versus the uh, intelligent or self-aware yeah. is that the Tommyknockers, if you remember, like they stayed sort of like halfway dormant in, until you started engaging with mm. them, and as soon as you engaged with them, they started like waking up. And yeah, like sort it's of sort of absorbing. responding to the fact that people have ritualized around it. Yep, exactly. And so now it wants it, it like it grew a hunger in response being sacrificed. to. Yeah. It. And so that's, that's what I was saying, like about young versus old thinny is like the young thinny still has like a vibrant society running around it. Mm. But this old thinny is like in an abandoned society where, you know, everybody's passed away from the plague and yeah. it no longer has anything going on in that area so then Hmm. it's not really active anymore right yeah i don't know it's that could i mean that's just so weird i I, yeah i really loved this thinny i'm not you know what i mean like i think (laughs) it was unexpected like i thought i understood what a thinny was and so i knew sort of the innate danger of a thinny but i didn't expect it to reach out with mist and grab things now we're getting into some lovecrafty stuff so you know i'm on board well and stephen king even takes the time to be like it looks silver but that was only because of the moon it's normally like a green mist right and it's like okay well why did you specifically let us know that in case you're wondering it's actually green and then you're like what color was the tommyknockers and also what color is the the glass castle or whatever back in in kansas it's green right it's the emerald palace right Mm. interesting alien ship all right so let's go back a little bit before we go move on so one of the things that's happening in this section is as you said the guys are relieved that he doesn't seem to have any more long hairs on him the other thing they're really glad about is he's acting like himself and they're actually finally getting to do something that feels like it matters they spent the entire summer just counting shit 
like that they know it doesn't <laughs> matter while trying out of the corner of their eye to count real things. And so the combination of actually doing something and seeing Roland act more like himself is a huge relief to Elaine and Cuthbert, who are just like kids would normally do, just kind of hope whatever the problem is will go away. And just kind of is a reminder of exactly how in over their head they are in this situation. Roland is essentially the adult of the group. I mean, he's the adult in the room. Personality-wise, he definitely is a bit of an old soul. But also, if you think about it, he's the only one that actually went through the trial of the gunslinger, right? So they are really looking at him to be the stabilizing force. And so when he starts to show poor judgment, that is really scary and really dangerous for them. And so the sense of relief that they feel when he's being himself is totally palpable in this section. It's just more of understanding the dynamic between them and how much of it is them just sort of being afraid to say something to him and hoping the problem will go away, which well, I don't think is going to serve. There's even a point where like, I think it's Keith Bird is like, we, we didn't, we didn't ask for this. This is too much for us. And, right. And, uh, Roland's like our father sent us on this task and like then Stephen King steps back and he's like everyone full well knowing that it was Roland's father not theirs <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. you're like yeah yo good point <laughs> yeah I mean because they were just supposed to be set aside somewhere safe and instead they've been thrown into the fire you know but at the same time they're committed to it because they are who they are so one other thing in this before we move on is that there is a repeating thing that happens in this book. It's sort of like a, it, and that is the naming of chapters after the moon that they're under. It kind of expresses the passage of time. But I also feel a lot of times it alludes to what's happening in the story. For instance, Susan and, and Roland met under the kissing moon. Now, this chapter is called Under the Peddler's Moon, which it sounds like pretty benign until we get into this the little description of the moon. Oh, God. Yes. And also the peddler himself. So I have this quote here. It says they waited and not 20 minutes later, the peddler's moon rose above the horizon, a perfect summer moon, huge and orange. It loomed in the darkening violet swim of the sky like a crashing planet on its face. As clear as anyone had ever seen it was the peddler. He who came out of the knowns with a sack full of squealing souls, a hunched figure made of smudged shadows with a pack clearly visible over one cringing shoulder. Behind it, the orange light seemed to flame like hellfire. All right. So <laughs> yeah, that's the peddler a... is clearly some sort of like Krampus type. And if Susan and Roland met under the kissing moon, what do you think Stephen King is getting at here with this peddler's moon? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> It's pretty dark, but it it basically sort of like spells out the, the end and doom and gloom for something in this area, if not more than something, right? Right, right. I was trying to figure out what the symbolism was for the peddler. Maybe he's trying to say, and this is just a guess, but like that that doom of all these poor souls being trapped in this cycle of the moon moving forward is like, oh, you fall in love, but you're not going to get love. You're going to get death. And death for you, but not for you. <laughs> and right. like this sort of like tragic slash um, dangerous time, I, I suppose. Because mm -hmm. what do we have coming up after this? Like the reaping moon yeah. and the, uh, um, what is the harvest moon? Yeah. And those are both like two also possibly dark contextual uh, moons. So like we start out, you're in romance. Then pretty soon, like, the soul catcher rolls in and, like, starts gathering up all these souls. Then you you collect them and kill them, and then you harvest them. 
Right. There's something about the idea that he's a peddler, right? He buys and sells things. He's someone that has something to do with the exchange of money, right? And we know that in Hambry, after by the end of this chapter, where we find out some of how this conspiracy is working and how some of it is greed motivated and people are making a lot of money and buying and essentially selling their souls. Like Hookie, who made the oxens thing. I mean... And is now has this beautiful shop that is fully repaired and is in the money. And mm-hmm. I think it's fair to assume that a lot of money is being exchanged in order for Farson to be able to do whatever he's doing at Sitco and whatever he's doing with the horses. And, and But these people are essentially, because this is the good man and we know that the good man is up to no good, total misnomer, they're essentially selling their souls to this guy, right? So, so do you feel like this is like a needful things sort of scenario? Where, I like, mean, you get something, but like that's you not a terrible comparison. Everything. I mean, if you think about what was what was what was that? Okay, I read that book a long time ago. So the guy, like, he opened a shop and was like buying people's souls. Correct. Uh, well, he so he gives you stuff that you want right in his shop, right? And in exchange, like the thing ends up doing something horrible to you, or like leaving right. you in an ironic state where it's like you know. Uh, I just remember the, there was like a necklace with a spider in it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's- yeah. Okay, well there you go. <laughs> okay. Okay, I like this comparison. But yeah, I kinda I do kind of feel like they're alluding to the fact that the peddler is ransacking Hambry's souls and maybe it is in the form of needful things. But it does not bode know. well. <laughs> yeah, and the moon thing, like I think you're onto something. I just don't know that I I spend enough time thinking about each of the moon descriptions. Right. Really know or say with like some certainty what I think each well, one of them. You know, I fixate on weird details. I can't help myself. And I've like, and also a part of it also is since I pick what we read next, I've been looking at the chapter titles a lot. Oh, okay, okay. Right now, this is the selling out phase. So, like, what happens at Reap? I'm guessing whatever happens under Reap Moon is going to be, and I have no idea because I'm not right ahead. I'm guessing it's going to coincide with the climax of the story is, and like everybody's about to <laughs> reap what they, or, you know, well, originally when I when she was talking or when Stephen King was talking about the Reap Moon and so on, I, I thought that was like a um, a metaphor for <laughs> Susan and the old I guy. mean, I think it is as well. But what, I, what I'm thinking is, is that might be a little bit of a, a red herring and it's oh, actually yeah, going to yeah. be like about whatever. See what happens. But I'm guessing <laughs> that I'm guess I don't know, but I'm guessing the timing of the reaping is going to be with whatever fallout we have. From yeah, all of this, I, I, I think um, you could probably interpret reaping in multiple ways. And I vaguely remember the end of this. Do um, we think so, she's going to bang the old dude? I don't think she's going to bang the old. Well, uh, yeah. So I, I, you know the answer. Okay, don't. I don't believe say. I re- know the answer, but I'm not ready to uh, leave an oil trail in the ground, as I alluded to earlier. Okay, so, okay, fair, 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 fair. Let's uh, hold off on that one. Um, okay. Uh, so moving on, we we get to the, the gang, like sort of like. Uh, well i want to make this statement first like roland as he's leaving like makes this sort of defiant call at the thinny that's like yeah i count one thinny and i apparently just knocked over some stuff uh, <laughs> i count one thinny because I'm, I'm actually like raising my hand up in the air and like shaking it which is unnecessary for a podcast uh, i know um but Leave it's it on like, the apricot ale <laughs> it's super dramatic and it's like well, what what are you doing and it's like almost in defiance yeah. of it and almost to like scorn it somehow to say like I'm i counted you. you you've been checked off my list yeah. we're getting out of here 
and like the you can tell that these are younger people because as they sort of like get closer and closer to the place they're staying like the barquet they they like they they basically start to feel better and better and a little less like antsy about it and start to actually have like thoughts about what's going on and as they're heading back like they start to discuss the the issue at hand which is the and keith bird actually like goes through this and starts like naming off exactly how many nets and boats and other provisions that they've counted uh, as like sort of a mocking little bit we get a little picture of the skull again that he taps on and uh, roland sort of tells the guys like hey look you know uh we can only keep playing dumb for so long before we run out of things to count and we've got to continue to like sort of count the important things from the corners of our eyes and the gang sort of agrees they're not sure where this is gonna go and then we see our bird friend who uh earlier exit stage left uh, had been shot at has a ruffled wing and Mm -hmm. roland kind of looks at it and is like oh you must have gotten a fight with a cat (laughs) and we of course as the uh reading audience know that that was not the case uh that this poor and traveling bird was actually shot at by one of his or oh, one of their interesting. enemies. So. That was not my interpretation. Oh, that's oh no! What did you? Well, I was thinking like, what's the only cat we know about in this book? Uh, Rhea's cat, right? Yeah, I suppose, but that's Is not really it... a cat. Like, I can't imagine like a six-legged, like weird other cat jumping up high enough to catch it. Well, I mean, if it like snuck up on it, it was like resting at the coos, oh, yeah, maybe. and the cat snuck up. Cause that's what it says. It looks like a cat like snuck up and got it. Cause one of its feathers is messed up. So, I mean, I don't know if this is true because obviously I don't remember for <laughs> shit about this book I'm discovering, but uh, my thing was, I think maybe the cat got it. So maybe Rhea has intercepted some of these messages. Oh, well, okay, so this isn't a spoiler, but it's a, a little bit of a bounce around. Um, with Rhea and her seeing glass, like, would she really need to well, actually she can't hear anything? Yeah, that's true. Right? We know that she can't hear. She can only see things in the glass. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, but then it, would that mean, like, she's intercepting the notes and then somehow getting them back onto the bird again? I mean, I don't see why she couldn't. Mm. I mean, I guess she's a witch. She might maybe... I mean, they're homing pigeons. You put the note back in and you just let it go. It's going to keep going where it's going. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. This is just what I thought. I don't know that this is the case. This this could be a total, like, in two episodes, I feel like a dumbass because there's some, like, obvious answer (laughs) that I missed, which happens all the time, I'm sad to report. But that was, I'm just telling you what my first thought was, was that could it be Rhea's cat? I didn't pick up what you're putting down, but, like, I, I I will nod to it and say, like, yes, that's possible. (laughs) okay not what i thought at all but uh, the thing is is the based on your reaction i feel like i definitely have tinfoil hat in this one (laughs) all right all right so uh that was the end of chapter eight um Um, okay real quick once again we end a chapter with roland you know in this case he's smiling under the peddler's moon as because he's like oh I'm going to get to see Susan again. You know, that's how it ends. We don't, we don't know what's in the note yet. It's just him saying, you're like, Oh, I guess I'm going to see Susan again. I'm going to have to see her. And, and I kind of felt like, uh Oh, last time we ended the chapter with him under a dying sun with his back turned to his friends. And now he's smiling under the peddler's moon. And after the description of the peddler, I feel like Stephen King is like flashing red lights. He loves to end a chapter this way. And considering what we know of the peddler now, I wonder, like, what does this mean? So I, I don't think, like, 
and we find this out a little bit later too that um you know susan's not just beautiful but she's also smart and cunning and like that's a, a trap for any younger man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like Roland is no, not exempt from that. He's trying to like play the cool card and and pretend like it's not a big deal, but like it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, right, right. All right. Well, let's talk. Let's get into Sitgo chapter nine. All right. So, uh, r- rolling on, Roland on. Nah. Down. Well, okay. Uh, uh, so we come back to like susan at her her aunt's place i guess also her family residence and uh this guy is coming up the path and he's bringing another horse and like apparently miguel is like a person that they've worked with before she knows him rather well and like he drops off this horse and it's a horse that susan recognizes and outwardly she's kind of like happy about it and like pleasant to him and says thank you and like sends him off on his way and inwardly she starts to sort of um sort of dwell on the fact that like this is a horse that she raised and that they their family took care of and like you're basically just giving us back the stuff that we already had Mm -hmm. uh, that you had then taken from us and then that gets her stewing on the fact that like this whole thing with her and Thorin and the that these are basically just payments towards prostitution. Yeah. <laughs> and and that makes her really angry. And and then she like the like one up is that she sees and I know this is moving a little bit from this section, but she sees the fact that the horse has like poorly shooed. Yeah. And that is almost an insult on top of it because it's like you took our property away from us. You didn't take very good care of it. And then like you contractually obligate me to this thing that I'm I'm not happy with and you don't treat her property correctly. And, and this sort of like leads her into like thinking about her father and stuff her father would say. And apparently her, her father was kind of a, a quiet guy mm-hmm. and didn't really like talk a lot. And when she'd ask him about it, he'd kind of have like a... a clever statement to it and i've forgotten what the clever statement I mean, like, was sometimes silence is best which is makes that what, okay yeah it reminded me of when she met roland on the road and he was so quiet and that it was like frustrating to her but i also feel like she respected his quietness because it was something that her father valued and reminds her of her father and it kind of speaks to some of that initial attraction that they had that he sort of embodied this idea that that her father would espouse about like sometimes silence is best. And he was kind of a quiet man. And, and I think, you know, in her mind, the ultimate guy is going to be someone that reminds her of her father. <laughs> I know. And that's where I, I was about to go. Oh, and, see, look at us on the same page. Yeah, and she like, she almost like rages internally for a moment where she's like, and my dad would have loved Roland. Yeah. He would have approved immensely. And it's like, man, you're describing every time you duck back, to describe your father. And then like, you describe the man that she's looking for. It's sort of a, I don't know, a cringeworthy bit for me when, like, you're like, yeah, I wish I could marry someone like my dad. It's like, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the the, uh, the patriarchy is strong in that statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and, like, that's the the feeling that's going on here. But also, like, young love and, and so on. And also the painful memories of her father. Yeah. That just yeah. kind of, like, hit her in waves. 
Um, you, you just added a star here as I'm looking at the Google notes. Uh, so. I actually knocked a couple off here because I had way too many stars. So I was like, I don't really have that much to say about this. <laughs> I mean, I would just say I feel like what we're experiencing with all of these subs- subsequent ep- um, chapters with Susan on her own is her kind of processing exactly what her situation is and how messed up it is that she's having her her life parceled back to her in exchange for sex more importantly what i think is happening here is that as each of these things fall into place it's like knocking down and crumbling every bit of the wall of her reserve to not give in to her love to will and you could say oh this is a character flaw or it's weak she's not keeping her word except for that we're giving all of these like totally valid reasons why she would feel conflicted about this and it when we get further on like there's some fairly pungent descriptions of like young young people's bits being excited about each a lot of lead and throbbing and (laughs) things of that variety yes when i when i went through the section where they mentioned balls i was just like balls really aching in my balls just, <laughs> who describes that that's weird i don't know i, I don't know man i don't know so is, <laughs> i i assume everything stephen king is, says is completely accurate about male puberty so i, I assume don't it's all true know if that's <laughs> I, I may have missed out on some on some certain throbbing balls and, and achings but like I, i'm sure he speaks from experience you know also a guy so i don't know <laughs> um, so Susan, I mentioned earlier, uh, it kind of is disgusted with the shape of her, um, horse's shoes. And so she heads down to the only stable in town that makes shoes. She knows how to shoe a horse, but she's never been interested in learning how to actually make the shoes themselves. And apparently this guy named hooky, um, has a nice stable and he's a Smith. And so she grabs the bag and this is fairly important. It's like a, a bag that her father used to carry of horseshoes mm-hmm. and carries it down there. And it's like kind of bouncing off her hip and like giving her a pleasant feeling and reminding her of the trips that her and her father used to take down to pick up shoes from this guy. And as she rolls in, she notices that like, it's a pretty nice looking place. Like things are fixed up. Everything looks pretty good. Uh, the holes that she remembers having in the uh, roof are patched and like all in all up and up for a town that, you know, normally this guy would be on you about paying for stuff. And she even asks like what she owes him for the shoes after he's gotten her what she needs. And he's like, Oh, you know, we'll settle up. No problem. I know you're good for it. It's not like you're going anywhere. Uh, Carry on, you know, get out of here. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) And like, that's, that strikes her as a little bit off because, uh, you know, at one point he, it would not have been a, a minor thing to uh, send someone off at, if they didn't pay their bill when they had product in hand to leave the, right. leave the uh, place. So she's thinking about that. And then she walks from the dark area out into the sunlight and sort of like loses balance and kind of sort of gets bumped or caught, I suppose, by um, Keith Burt, who's like hanging uh, out. Elaine. It's Elaine. Or, excuse me, Elaine, who's, who's hanging out like outside of there and she's like what and he like uh begs her pardon and she sort of has this internal moment where she's like you're will's friend well uh, you know maybe i should tell him to give him a, a hundred kisses and tell him it's from me 
no. And then she's like, like breaks down into like a doofus land and starts giggling to herself about imagining him giving Will hundred kisses. <laughs> and you're like, this almost like makes you blush because it's so embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so she like, uh, he begs her pardon, blah blah blah, and like. Uh, he kind of wanders off and he doesn't go the direction she expects. And she's like, well, that was weird. And then she opens up her bag of shoes and finds a note inside and realizes that that's what's up. That was like on purpose to sort of leave this note for Susan to find. And inside it's got like a, hey, meet me at the Sitgo uh, 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 oil patch and burn this note after reading. <laughs> Which is like kind of fun and also sort of like novelty spy so i i enjoyed yeah, that a little bit yeah um let's see you don't have any notes here so i think that... you keep going you can keep... oh keep going keep yeah going. okay <laughs> uh, so like uh susan is like riding the horse around on the drop and um she kind of like is him and hawing about whether or not she wants to to meet him and she doesn't end up deciding that that's the thing that she wants to do for that night and so she um, she basically like wonders about the patch and then starts deeply thinking about her father and wonders if if Roland is correct and that the corruption, maybe her father was killed and that seed is still growing. And I want to underline the seed a few times because <laughs> that has like multiple levels yes, uh, yes, and yes. multiple things <laughs> and, and basically we we just get this like internal dialogue about how she feels about everything that's going on and Ka and whether like she should stay to her commitments and like how sexy roland is and like she's afraid that she might give herself up if he, he asked her to and and this is the thing that you were talking about where she's like basically wrestling internally with like, should I see him again or should I not? And as she keeps thinking about the, should I see him again? Like that side sort of starts to push in mm-hmm. and she uses excuses like uh, wanting to know about what happened to her, her father. But like, those are thinly veiled with, I also want to see how Mr. Will is doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. you've got four stars here and I kind of like, I mean, there's a skim through this, so no, it's totally fine. So, I mean, there's a couple of things here. Obviously, Susan is really struggling with her decision and we get a wind metaphor, of course. And I started to note these as I went through the chapter, but (laughs) honestly, there was so many that I just stopped. So I just, I'm just going to stick with this one. Literally every single time they think about each other, they're like wind, 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 wind. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's everywhere. It's you know what is that that is that jim carrey movie where he's like the number 24 or something you know oh yeah 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 it's, it's like 23 that. i think is the yes number. okay it's like the number 23 but only wind in every single chapter where, where the rolling susan because they are just winding it up but okay so here we have her she is really struggling like i said she's gone out on her horseback she's really struggling with her decision and she's torn as to what to do and here this is the quote it says she listened to the faint grumble of the thinny and for the first time in her 16 years was truly torn by indecision all she wanted stood against all that she believed of honor and in her mind roared with it roared with conflict all around like a rising wind around this unstable horse she felt the idea of cog growing 
Yet to give over one's honor and uh, for that reason was so easy, wasn't it? To excuse the fall of virtue by invoking an all-powerful caw. It was soft thinking. So again, we have our wind metaphor, of course. But I also think it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a takedown of modern day Roland. The way that he kind of relies on every decision to be caw. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. everything is caw. Whereas she definitely is very different and then she pushes back on it quite a bit. Part of the question is... Is it soft thinking or is it something that happens in the, this book that changes his opinion? Like maybe she, we're going to find out that Susan is not right in the way that she thinks about this and that Ka really is an all-powerful force. But I, I do think it's interesting to have a conflicting thought around it. Well, doesn't she – okay, so um, I might be mixing this up, but there's a moment where she kind of like broaches back to her father and Ka in general mm-hmm. and like says internally like Ka will do what it does. Mm-hmm. And you have no choice about that, but you have choices about other things. Yeah. And so, like, that statement is, like, sort of a knowing that Ka is all-powerful, but knowing that you yourself can still, like, make whatever choices you want and then deal with what Ka deals you. Yeah, like, Ka's going to take care of itself. Like, you have to do what you can do. Yep. The other thing I really thought about in this section, and it's something that is a pattern that I had not really noticed until now, until I started thinking about it. But Roland, we think of Roland as the hero or the protagonist of the Dark Tower series. But if you think about it, Roland is actually very rarely the main, main character. Central to the overall story, yes. But with the exception of the gunslinger, he hasn't really been the main, main character in these books and you know in the drawing of three i think you could argue that eddie is the main character in the um wasteland you could argue that eddie and jake are the main characters because they get the majority of the point of view perspective Mm -hmm. and in this i feel like we are spending way more time in susan head susan's head than in roland's or anybody else's i think you could argue that susan is actually the main character of this book well I think in the case of of everything but the very first book, like Roland is what you hang the story on. Yeah. But the story isn't just Roland. Like he's the, he's sort of the. When you think of the voice of the piece, who do you think of with this? Do you really think of Roland or do you think of Susan? I don't know. So I I hadn't really thought of the omniscient narrator as Susan per se in this. Um, But it does change its tone a little bit. I thought that was uh, conditional in the fact that we went from the future to the past. I just think it's interesting, though, that it's it's when you think about who whose internal life we're most involved with with in this book. When we get into the Roland sections, rarely do we a lot of spend a lot of time with really in depth what he's thinking. He's a little bit more mysterious in this. It turns into omniscient narrator a lot with his sections, whereas with Susan, it is a ton of internal dialogue, a ton of her talking about her feelings and, and processing her feelings. It's much more complex what's happening with her, whereas Roland, we get little bits and pieces, but it's primarily we're hearing it from the narrator as opposed to we're hearing it from Roland. Do you think that's just uh, because Stephen King wants to throw a shadow over what Roland's thinking so that it doesn't spoil what's ahead? I think some of it is that, yes. But I also think some of it is because I think King really wants us to care about Susan. And I think when you center her as our main character in this book, it just sort of naturally lends you to get on her side and to invest in her. And so I think some of this, when 
you know, we know this is a tragic love story. And we're going to get into this a little bit later because we're going to talk about Romeo and Julia a lot later when we get to sick, like later in this chapter. Mm-hmm. But this book opens with a quote from from Romeo and Juliet. So I don't think it's a stretch to know that this is going to be a tragic love story. I don't think that's a spoiler. And so I feel like he wants in he only he only has one book to make you genuinely care about her and to really invest and understand her. And so I think centering her and making her the main character of this book just makes that a lot easier and a lot more efficient so that because we are very invested in her emotional journey in this book more so than anybody else's like we know that that Roland is lovelorn but when he's crying at the end of this chapter we do not hear it from his perspective we only hear it from hers when she realizes there's tears on her face because we're way more invested in her side of the story in this book I you know I I didn't think about the Shakespeare thing until you you just mentioned it now mm. and you're actually right. Like um, with the Montagues and the Capulets, like mm-hmm. when Romeo first like sees Juliet, he's got a couple of his buddies yep. on his side yep. that are like, you know, stay you're your sword. Ahead of me. Yes. Let's do it. Let's talk and, about it. <laughs> and so like, you know, when you, when you start to paint it in that light, it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I, I can buy into that theory because like with Juliet, she was like a sort of like a captured and already, proposed to someone else yep she was betrothed to paris yep yep exactly and so like if you analog that then like sure enough that sort of fits her her demeanor as well where she's already like signed up for something it's just a little darker because this one's like you want to be my side hustle and at least in romeo and juliet she was the main hustle (laughs) right 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 but yeah yeah i think you i think you hit it on the head actually like once you said that i I started like playing all of it out of my mind. I'm like, yep, yep, absolutely. Yep. Perfect. That fits perfectly. Good job. Yep. One more thing. And I'm just, since we're already on the subject, I'll just touch on it really quickly is that uh, speaking of analogs through this entire book, I've been trying to like slot Cuthbert and Elaine into the Eddie Susan mold, Susanna molds. Like these, they're their analogs. But really, if you think about it, they are, totally based on Romeo's friends, Mercutio and ben- and Benvolio. So Benvolio is known as being like clear thinking, reliable, peace loving, caring, trustworthy, responsible. That's totally Elaine. Mercutio is this loyal best friend to the death. He's witty. He's funny. He's hot headed. He's a little bit crude. I mean, come on. That's like so obviously the, the Elaine and and Cuthbert and so like the more I started trying to lay these two stories over one another the more I realized exactly how much the overall story is Stephen King redoing Lord of the Rings to some degree Uh, but this book this book is his Romeo and Juliet I mean that is that is the inspiration for the story and he's pulling from it all over the place we're gonna there's some like direct quotes later in this chapter that will circle back to this Romeo and Juliet Mm -hmm. conversation but I mean this is where it like really clicked for me. And so I was like, now what were the literary quotes at the beginning of the book? And I flipped back and it, the very first one is the scene from Romeo and Juliet and then followed by Wizard of Oz and obviously to the, you know, the Browning poem, but still, if there's any question, <laughs> just, just look at these characters because they're well, clearly lifted from, from the play. So your Shakespeare um, description, like I, I know that you were trying to slot the two together, but in a way, um present day roland and the gang sort of fill the same holes as past roland and the gang like you have one that's more comical and witty yep and one that's more like reliable and caring yep and i mean jake's a little bit off on the side 
but that's fine. Uh, they do both sort of still play the same style of role. So mm-hmm. to analog them together is fair. And also to yeah. uh, do the other Romeo and Juliet is, yeah. is also fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hmm. Yep. 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 Okay. So we, we cut to uh, what uh, I assume is Sunday, but they call it sand day there. Yes. And the gang is like kind of restless and like, they don't have much to do anyway. So like the rest of the Cowboys in the area who take sand day off, they have also decided to do this. Um, and, and so Keith Bird's like wandering around the market and he sees uh, some stuff in the market that like starts to make him homesick. Mm-hmm. And he starts to like actually tear up and yeah. miss his mother. Yeah. And like it becomes this like weird um, joke. It's like a joke that only Keith Bird would, would enjoy. And like, yet he is the butt of his own joke when he's he's thinking of this. And while he's like distracted thinking about his mother and missing her and getting teary eyed, uh, Susan bumps into him and says, Hey man, you dropped your purse. And I, I guess in this case, like I'm imagining this is sort of like a coin purse. Yeah. Like the little snap together ones that you mix in with your wallet for your mm-hmm. change. So it doesn't get tossed around your bag or whatever. And he's like, he kind of like has this like clever response of like, Oh, on sand day, my my brain and my wit have walked away with me. And he's also <laughs> sort of struck. This is the point where you realize that, like, Susan's charm isn't just on Roland. It's on, like, all of these younger yeah. men that meet he her. He is shook by how hot she is. Yeah, he's like, dang, normally if you're beautiful like that, you don't have to be clever because uh, you're beautiful. So, like, you can just be beautiful when you wake up in the morning and that's enough. And he's like, no, no, she's even got, she's got brains and looks. Whoa. Whoa. Uh, double package. <laughs> now I have a new respect for this girl. And so he like, where he's normally the, the cunning person who has something to say, he starts like rambling and she has to sort of cut him off and be like, no, this is definitely your purse. And he's like, okay, yeah, I, I get it now. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, of course, duh, I got this. So he opens up the coin purse and like finds a note from Susan. And the note is basically like, listen, I can't do this, Roland. And, and then I think, doesn't this one also, also have a burn after reading yes. request as well? Yes. What is what is with the burn after reading request? So like, that there's no way anybody can find that they've been passing notes to each other. Because it's mm. so dangerous that they're passing notes to each other. So, like, you got to get rid of this immediately. So so moving on, basically, uh, we, we cut back to Keith Burt kind of, like, rolling back up to the gang. Mm-hmm. And... They're perched on this, like, sort of lookout area. And while it's an okay lookout area, it's also, like, just happens to look Mm -hmm. over the ranch that belongs to Susan and the family. It's quite the Uh, metaphor, right? Where he's supposed to be paying attention to the town, but really he's focused on Susan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and so he gets the note, reads it, and is sort of, like, a bust when he he understands that she's not coming. And so that that sort of, like, downtroddenness of Roland... um, gets him like off his kilter and this is where elaine sort of like rolls in and makes roland sort of do what they need to do by mentioning like well we still need to go to sitco Mm -hmm. and we still need to count this stuff and then like this is the moment where stephen king kind of steps back and i don't know whose internal dialogue this is but it sort of goes on this sort of tangent about how when people meet him he's sort of a gentle giant and looks to be 
not as intelligent as he actually is. Mm -hmm. But in moments like this, he's far more cunning than you even realize. He's got that emotional intelligence. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. And like when we think about him having either the touch or being a little bit psychic or whatever, like knowing what someone is wrestling with gives him the ability to sort of like push him over the edge one direction or the other mm -hmm. to teeter in the way that they need to go. And and then the fun part is like we also also get like sort of internal dialogue of Keith Burt where he's like, does he go after her or does he not go after her? Yeah. And he like loses the bet with himself and uh, Roland kind of follows along with what Elaine wants him to do. And like they're like, OK, so we we need a plan for uh, uh, seeing this and going through to Sitco and like checking it out. Roland and the gang sort of discussed the fact that they did manage to have that one moment in the saloon, but everybody sort of like underestimated them. Mm -hmm. And because of that underestimation and because of their gunslinger training, they were able to sort of just fall into place and like win that battle. Yeah. But they're not going to have that type of luck this next no, round. No, 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 no. <laughs> and so it's, it's far darker than that. And there's actually even a moment too, where like you kind of see that Roland's the only one that's sort of looking at all of the angles because they're like, well, maybe he just got, you know, what happened to DePape? Maybe they just got rid of him. And Roland's like, no, he's too far out on the edge to get rid of uh, one of his allies. It's too hard to replace and he's too important. Um, so he, he's they're just as far out on the ledge as we are mm -hmm. in this situation. And so it kind of gives you this feeling that both groups are teetering and yeah. one could win or the other could win. Mm -hmm. and, and the that doesn't strike a lot of... Um, confidence in the group yep and so they're all kind of like a little downtrodden after that and not sure what's going to happen next other than that they need to go to the sicko patch and, and take a look mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you i you just deleted one star i'm watching these live as rachel is like <laughs> taking away stars and adding stars and i'm not used to that so like, sorry i'll stop i'll stop doing it no no um, you're fine it's just uh that's usually my hint to be like hey okay rachel's got three stars here it's something she wanted to, wants to talk about but this was a four star maybe a five star section and now it's because no, no, you did such a good job of covering it one of the things that we didn't touch on really quickly uh is that Cuthbert gets a look at at Roland's face when he sees the note and sees that she's not coming and sees how crushed he is by it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, considering we know where Elaine and Cuthbert are at with this whole situation and how scared they are when he gets like with the, the, uh, when he's not acting like himself. So to see this, I think, was uh, very concerning. Right. They're realizing mm -hmm. that Susan has integrated themselves into their lives on a much deeper level than they ever experienced. And so it's for all Cuthbert's gift of gab and how he can never shut the F up in this moment. He's completely at a loss for words until Elaine steps in. And like you said, has this sort of very empathetic response. But what we didn't touch on also is there's a moment here and it echoes something coming up in a couple of uh, sections that I wanted to, to talk about, which is that Cuthbert sees something on Roland's face that is concerning and of note. So I'm just going to read you the quote. It says, this is after Elaine has told him like, Hey, you know, we still have to do our duty essentially. And Roland responded, raising himself off the saddle horn and sitting up straight. The strong golden light of that summer's afternoon lit his face in harsh contrast. For a moment, that was the face haunted by the ghost of the man he would become. Cuthbert saw that ghost and shivered. 
not knowing what he saw, only knowing that it was awful. So for all this suite of first, you know, talk of first loves, there is something about Susan that brings out a a very dark and obsessive side in him that Cuthbert gets a look at here. And it's something we're going to see again in a minute. And I want to get more into it, but I just wanted to point it out in this section. So this is repeated, I think three times. At least twice. Section. At least twice. Because I know um, Keith Burt sees it. Then she yes. sees it. And then they're out at the Sitco patch. And maybe and Susan sees it too, huh? I thought, yeah, and I thought Susan saw it as well. Mm, I know she, there's a lot of her seeing the man he's going to become, and then being like, and they're startled all like, by him looking like a boy again. Yeah, they're all every time they see that portion of him, they're each like frightened and also a little in awe with like what this this man or this boy will become when he's a man. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dark yeah. times. Yes. Well, I, I definitely when we get to the Shimi part, I want to I want to know what you think about it when we get there. OK, so uh, we cut back to Susan, who has basically decided to like become a workaholic for the day to use that as a, a way to exhaust herself so she doesn't think about rolling. And that would be fine normally. However, this is sand day when she's supposed to be like relaxing like her aunt is. And as she furiously works throughout the place, she still keeps thinking about Will. And she only exceed, uh, succeeds in, like, sort of making herself tired so that she can fall asleep. Um, she's fixated again on her, her uh, father's possible murder. And she's also sort of thinking about the fact that, or that <laughs> she wants to see Roland. And her aunt, at the same time, is confused and, like, even calls her out. And, like, what are you doing working so hard it's sunday take a break and this is the lady who doesn't notice that she's done all of her chores to begin with which is sort of saying something about that Mm -hmm. and and this is where she also like sort of wrestles with and then decides that like maybe it's important for her to actually meet those guys after all and and she sort of wrestles with this until she finally falls asleep i guess she kind of decides the only reason I'm not going is because of the attraction that I have for him and that I would totally go if that weren't the case. So I should just go. It's not just about seeing Roland. It's about getting mm-hmm. answers about my dad. And that gives her the permission structure to essentially do the thing she wants to do anyway. And that's finally why she's able to go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I guess it's if you've ever been young, which both of us have. Believe when it or not, you, there was you make a time. <laughs> a poor choice, and like you develop a cognitive structure that you can hang that poor choice on to be yeah. like, yeah, this totally made sense. Yep, this is like, validated. I really thought mm-hmm. about this, mm-hmm. and like that was obviously the only choice I could have made. And someone's like, "What about this?" And you're like, "Oh, oh, oh, no." <laughs> yeah, but totally. by then it's too late. <laughs> totally. What is inferred is that Susan communicates with him this time via Shimi. Oh, uh, I love Shimi. Such a so cutie. Shimi rolls into the traveler's rest where the, the guys are hanging out. And uh, he when he rolls in, he like he's sort of casual Friday about it and calls him. How are you doing, young coffin hunters? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and like Cuthbert ain't uh, about it. <laughs> yeah. Cuthbert's like, we're doing fine. But none of us are appealed or are very excited about you calling us coffin hunters 
Um, so you might as well keep that one to yourself. And like, then there's this moment again where like they sort of describe Shimi as having his brains scrambled enough that nothing will keep him down for too long Mm -hmm. before he's like happy again. Except for that. I feel like Roland definitely gets something wrong here. Like he's like, Oh, he could never lie. And we're like, Oh my God. Yes, he can. Because yeah, we know it, he did it before, and he did the same. Like, it's clear that he, Susan, again, said, don't tell anyone who, who gave this to you. Yep. She gave him instructions, and Roland's just like, whoop, missed it completely. Yeah, and so uh, this is, again, where, like, when Shimi is asked to, or finally, he's like, oh, I remember. I don't remember who told me this, but I needed to tell you something. And, like, uh, it's something about planted seeds, and it's the, uh, Roland immediately gets it. Like, the seed he planted of her father's, um demise has like rested with with uh um susan and she's basically uh given that information back to shimi as a way to to let them know and it's funny because shimi's like i brought you some seeds uh-huh mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. it's him like sort of mixing up what he's got going on but the moment like he's he looks into roland's eyes we get the same um thing that you described earlier yeah. we're like shimi's like even though he's not the sharpest guy in the world, like he sees it and is immediately frightened by what Roland has inside of him. Here, I'll read you the quote. Roland's eyes blazed so fiercely that Shimi stumbled back a step. He liked Will Dearborn, but in that moment he saw something in Will Sai's eyes that frightened him badly. In that instant, he understood that Will was much, much was as much a killer as the one in the cloak or the one that wanted Shimi to lick his boots clean or the old white haired Jonas with the trembly voice. He was as bad at that as them or even worse. So, okay. So this is the thing I was alluding to before. And, you know, we've talked about how you can judge a person's character in this book based on the way that they treat Shimi. But I Mm -hmm. also feel like Shimi is such a pure soul and we're meant to believe that he is pretty perceptive in his own way. And I kind of want to know what you think King is trying to say here with both, you know, practically back to back his best friend and Shimi seeing this something about him. Like what are these perceptions? Like our perception has always been clouded by the fact that he's sort of the protagonist of these series. So I guess what I'm trying to say is by giving us a viewpoint of other characters onto Roland, what do you think King is trying to tell us here? So while these three instances seem like almost the same, I would like to break them apart into their own different views of Roland. And so the first one, when he's sort of thinking of Susan and he's in despair, you're almost seeing like the obsession that Roland can have with something yes, and the amount of passion it brings him. Yes. But when Shimi sees him while there's obsession, like Shimi isn't thinking about the passion that Roland has. He's thinking about like the pure solid um, hardness of Roland himself. And like, this guy is like a cold blooded killer. If you put him, put him up to the right task. Yeah. And then like, Finally, when we get to the last view of Roland, like that one is yet a different aspect of Roland's persona. And it's not just the cold blooded killer or the obsessive man, but like almost in the third one is almost an alien to the Roland that's in front of her now is this like passioned and loved teen and more of like a hardened gristled person who is like gone through 
a bunch of stuff and turned mm-hmm. into what Roland is now in in essence, like not just a gunslinger, but like a gunslinger who's seen some stuff. And I, at first when I went through these, I thought like, well, yeah, they're all just seeing like the dark Roland. But like when you break it down that way, you're like, oh, well, because Heathbert sees that he's in love with this girl, he recognizes that Roland can be obsessed with a thing. And when Shimi sees him, he's not thinking of the love that Roland has. He's just seeing Roland as like a, a hardened, cold-blooded killer who will do the right thing if it's necessary, but will also mm. not hesitate to shoot someone down if it's part of the reasoning that he's come up with for the thing. And then when Susan sees him, like that's the weird or the more like uh, basically beaten Roland or beaten up Roland or, you know, rough and dark Roland. I, world I weary Roland. Yeah. World really weary, weary is probably a good term. And and so that's how I saw the three, but like throwing it back to you, am I off base or is that make sense? No, I think, I think that's probably true. Um, I also think that we're there. I think King is trying to tell us something here that this darkness in Roland, this obsession in Roland is, somewhat innate to who he is it's not something that's been shaped by experiences but it is part of who he is at his core because at this point he's still pretty young he's had some experiences but it's not the Roland that we know now and we think like oh he is the sum of his life experiences this is separating that a little bit saying like no this is kind of who Roland is um that this is a part of who he was it doesn't necessarily mean that's who he would have become but this has always been a part of who he is was how I kind of took it. Okay. No, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading too much. No, I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, I would never tell you you're reading too much into things because hello, but also I think that you can interpret this a few different ways and be correct. Yeah. Hmm. They head out for the night to sort of get to where they're, they're going to meet Susan and, and go to the, the sitco patch. And like Roland has the gang sort of like hang out on a hill as lookout while Roland like rides down to meet Susan directly. And like, as Roland's riding down there, he's looking at this like big uh, field of orange trees and there's blossoms on these trees. And like Roland starts thinking to himself, like this, this plantation of orange blossoms is stupid, but it's also like orderly and a labor of love. Mm hmm. And the thing that he points out is that the temperatures in this area are far too cold to make a sweet orange. So these things are going to be as sour as can be. But someone still, knowing that their task was uh, fruitless, went through all of the steps of planting this beautiful large orchard, knowing that the fruit that would be reaped from this orchard (laughs) is not going to be good. Yeah. And that sort of is the metaphor to start with Roland uh, meeting Susan here is like, yeah, (laughs) it's like, Hey, like uh, we went through all these steps to be civilized and like courted and and got to this point. And like what we're doing now is not going to be fruitful. Like it's not going to turn out good. (laughs) That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's a really good point. And so like that whole bit about the, uh, the orange grove, like, it struck me for a moment where you're like, oh, Roland's like using this as a description of like the things that we do in society that make society work, all the steps that have to happen and that it's a very meticulous process. But like in the end, 
in this it's gonna bear time. sour fruit yeah, yeah it's gonna bear, bear sour fruit yeah and, and like mm-hmm. that's super dark <laughs> yeah yeah it sure is <laughs> and so while he's like deeply contemplating this like uh, susan basically manages to sneak up on him which again sort of uh implies susan's cunningness that mm-hmm. we're we're sort of like getting a a subtle push from Stephen King to let you know over and over again that she's not just a pretty face, but she's also, you know, uh, skilled and adept in her own way. Yeah, she snuck up on a gunslinger. That that takes skill. And so they're like, they're sort of chatting and uh, um, getting a little flirty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, I don't, I might be wrong, but I think there's even a little bit of like, kissy and like yeah. you could take me but but don't and then we get this like long stephen king description of like throbbing it's boner town for like, sure and like <laughs> and she felt the hardness where our two parts were designed to meet yes yes <laughs> lois yes. belt and it sort of gets a little impassioned and then like we cut to uh ria's hut okay really quickly before we go to ria's hut i just want to you pointed out the fruit thing I think is the best metaphor and I'm about it. Um, I okay. picked up on something a little different and I think they both work. So if you recall, I said that the book opens with a Romeo and Juliet quote, right? Okay. And I think it has very obvious connotations for the scene. It comes from act two, scene two, when Romeo has shown up at Juliet's balcony and is professing his love for her. Mm-hmm. And there is this whole thing about the moon shining on the fruit trees. And it, this is basically scene setting, essentially. It, they're making some very clear parallels here about star-crossed lovers. And it's going to lead into a quote that comes in the same scene in in the subsequent chat sections here. So I just wanted to quickly point out that we are we have now entered the exact scene from the play that oh, he really? was referencing at the beginning. Yes. Okay, I don't remember my Romeo and Juliet that well. I mean, I can name Montague and Capulet, and maybe uh, um, I can't even remember the the soliloquy that the priest gives. Yeah. So like, uh, you know it better than me, obviously. Uh, the quote that I'm going to give you is one that you know. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So now we cut back to Rhea's hut, and like this, uh, this is back to my uh, Tommy knockers uh, underlined three yeah. times. Thing. <laughs> no kidding. So yeah. Rhea's st- apparently been staring into this ball, like soap operaing the townsfolk <laughs> and everybody. For See, that's why you need to invent cable people. <laughs> yeah, and, and so she's been like using this ball so much that the ball is starting to use her. Yeah, and you can see. Like as Stephen King describes the the layout of her house or hut or whatever, we sort of get this description of Rhea first as not an eternal being, but someone who's lived way longer than anybody yeah, there would she's ever. She's had suspect. an unnaturally long life, yeah, and and that people like basically couldn't tell how old Rhea really is. And that now, after staring into this ball for a while, that has caught up with her. And she's she's beginning to show her age. And we, we get this description of the the place where she lives. And it's normally cluttered and kind of gross. But this one has gone up a level of cluttered and unkeptness and grossness as Rhea just continually <laughs> stares into this ball, even to the point where, like, her cat's sort of mad at her. Yeah. He hasn't, <laughs> her cat hasn't and been... her snake are like, the fuck, dude? What yeah, the hell? exactly. <laughs> and, and the thing the thing is, is... um. The reason I bring that up is earlier you mentioned the uh, the bird uh-huh. and the cat. And so 
if Stephen King to me is painting this thing of Rhea sort of being like all absorbed in this ball, mm-hmm. then would she really have the time or yeah, want to pull herself away not. to actually like go capture the note and grab it? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> and I, I don't want to throw too much salt on no, your, salt on your bird idea. Salt, but salt, like... salt and burn the earth. It's fine. It's okay. fine. <laughs> uh, so like Rhea's like sort of uh, evilly cackling and watching these two. And like if they get a little bit more handsy, like they'll find out. And it, this is where we get a, an uh, allusion back to what uh, Rhea had basically yeah. hypnotized susan into to doing on her first uh virginal night and and we don't know what it is yet but if it happens with roland like that's all the better for Rhea because she doesn't like him either <laughs> and so that'll yeah. be a fun thing and then like Rhea even um internally sort of has this uh um this thought of of how susan could have faked it but she's too young to know that and mm-hmm. you know uh hide a thimble of cow's blood or something like that and and so you you get this sort of weird like voyeur voyeuresque thing of Rhea watching these guys i mean really well we get in this section is kind of we find out what Rhea's been up to all summer She's, she's sort of been staring in the ball. Yes, she's been sort of in the background lurking. You know, we've been so focused on sort of the problems in front of us. It's easy to kind of lose sight of what she's doing and that she also is a lingering threat. So, but we, we find out it's basically she's just been watching her crystal ball <laughs> and that, that that obsession has caught her. And I do feel like this whole book could almost be a bit of a cautionary tale about obsession, you know, that Roland would be very wise to learn that, you know, the cost of obsession, because we're seeing how that's happening, how it's affecting Roland. We know where Roland is in present day and how the choices, the the terrible choices he's made over the, over time because of his obsession. And here we see it's happening to Rhea, Rhea who thinks she's smarter than everyone else. Rhea who, you know, has disdain for everyone else and, everybody wants to be a fool and be made a fool of essentially but here she is her obsession is now robbing her of this vitality in this this life in general the fact that we now know that she can even though she can't hear them she can keep tabs on people in town you know that's probably that's probably bad news (laughs) and probably not good (laughs) that that Rhea can keep tabs on you yeah and and just the like sucking of her vitality out it's like man this has got to be a Tommy Knockers reference. We got like green, <laughs> a green thinny, and we've got you know that's the alien ship that's crashed there. And like, <laughs> well, right? I mean, there is uh, um kind of a Stephen King universe where there is sort of alien overlord situation happening, right? Like, yeah, there's like yeah. under the dome is about alien like alien overlords, and there's I feel like there's another there's a handful of these things where these like leatherhead shaped these like leatherhead aliens are like sort of sinister but also kind of ambivalent overlords so i don't know maybe maybe i mean they're they're coming in real life as we found the repeating signal from the milky way galaxy do we get a new is there a new thing uh yeah 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 if you haven't um read some of the nasa reports like there's Uh -uh. an actual repeating radio signal that's being sent to the earth now Yep. So we kind of covered some of the stuff in 11, but uh, basically these guys are hot and heavy for a bit, yeah. like back and forth. Like we talked about that. There's some throbbing, some descriptions. Um, pretty soon, uh, Susan like explains what she was up to that day and she was getting fitted for these 
uh, four dresses, which are actually five dresses, because she didn't want to tell Roland about the special yeah. dress that, <laughs> that she's going to have oh, to wear for their creepy uh, night. And, like, this is where we get a, another glimpse of Roland basically being, like, a bit on the sass side, where he's like, yeah, well, in Gilead, we would have had nine dresses. <laughs> you guys only have four. I know. You Why are you dress hillbillies? Roland? You know, yeah. like, what? <laughs> and so then um, Roland kind of, like, uh, pokes at her a little bit to ask her about um, the big coffin hunters, and she explains that only two of them are really hanging around right now, and that coincides with, like, what Roland's talking about. And Roland tells her that, you know, that they've discovered oxen and she's like that's unheard of and that they're playing a game of castles and like that they're we kind of cut back through the stuff of them counting and uh realizing that like things are amiss here and just like the number of horses that are left out in the open this is like a a crazy bit as well and they basically start like looking at well this is the part where i might jump around a little bit so well, let's Roland. pause really quickly before we move on then. So after all the smooching and boners that we've talked about, <laughs> uh, <laughs> she asks him again, who are you? Because she has begun to suspect he is not who he says he is. And, and he basically is like, you know, I'm mostly what I said. But, you know, the, the truth is I, I was sent here just to be put out of the way. I didn't expect to find all this conspiracy. And she mm-hmm. asks him what his name is. And he at first refuses to give it to her. He gives it to her later in the chapter. But... At this point, he basically says no, and he, you know, he says one ga- one name is as good as another, I want, if the heart that answers to it is true. But here's the thing, is that is a direct reference to another thing that happens in the exact same scene that is referenced at the in- beginning of the book that this, the orchard scene set up. And is that, this a rose by no, uh, any other name and smells so sweet ding, type ding, of thing? Ding, 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 exactly. Okay. This is King's version of that message. And it just, again, reinforces how much this is meant to be a Romeo and Juliet story. This is his tragic love story and how he always takes a lot of inspiration from other literary works. And in this case, this is just another reinforcement of that this is his version of that story. Hmm. yeah yeah i mean i agree with that but there's a point where like roland's like you you can call me will if you prefer and she's like no roland is a beautiful name it's so noble it's so noble <laughs> and i'm like i don't know if it is noble or not but like uh sure why not wait till you find um, out who his daddy is girl <laughs> damn <laughs> this is an eld boy right here but it's, uh, it's it, funny as much as he claims in the section to you know that he understands the danger of the situation and he he doesn't want to tell her too much because it's drawing her too like it's getting her too close and that information is too dangerous to have meanwhile on one hand he's saying that on the other hand he's like keeps pulling her deeper and deeper into the conspiracy he tells her basically everything else other than his name and while on one hand he's justifying it by saying like she has information that is helpful to me the fact of the matter is he just want i think he just really wants to be close to her and that sort of validates and like i said before creates a permission structure for him to draw her in closer is to be like oh she has this information and she does ultimately prove to have some valuable information but it's how he's able to kind of deal with the cognitive dissonance of being like on one hand i want to protect you but on the other hand i need you to be close to me and yeah. I, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, kids lie to themselves all the time. Yeah, I mean, adults lie to themselves all the time. Like, I, I, I do, on the daily. It's how I get through the day. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw the infomercial. Red wine, it's great for you. Just right? drink you a couple it. bottles and you'll be healthy as It's good for your heart. Chug a lug. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm going to jump around a little bit in this okay. because, like, it's sort of non-linear in my head. Okay. Um, the They're, like, kind of hanging out in the orange grove and, like, Susan – um basically starts to explain to roland like that while she's lived around these uh oil patches for a long time like it's not something that she really frequented it's kind of a kid's dare type of thing to go in there and like see stuff but her father and this is where we get a little vignette of her father he's kind of like was interested in all the old-timey stuff and we kind of get this picture that at the time he was younger you could still go in there and find what I assume are ink pens that were still writable mm-hmm. and paper and other useful tidbits in these old buildings that are associated with this oil patch. And as they're like sort of looking around and she's explaining this, like there's a tower. And if you've ever lived next to an oil patch, you may well know of this. There's an off gas tower um, when they're emptying the, uh, the wells, the, liquid is at the bottom but the gas actually raises to the top and so to keep from basically having a giant explosion in the area they have a candle that's lit and it's not really a candle it's more of a tube that runs up and is just on fire all the time uh-huh. and that burns off all of the extra emitted gases from whatever pocket they're sucking the oil out of and so that's what they're describing when they when stephen king says there's a giant candle and it like sort of makes a burst and an explosion as more pockets of gas come up through that, uh, it burns off more and more gas. And it's also sort of a safety thing. And mm-hmm. we sort of learn about this with the tanks. Um, apparently, people from town come in, grab tanks, and use that to run their few appliances that run on gas, their refrigerator and their cook stove. If the tank that's that's storing that gas gets full then it'll continue to off-gas and burn the excess until the tank's removed and changed out. So uh, that's like a really way deep practical explanation of that (laughs) that I probably didn't need to do. But like, if you're not familiar with the oil process, that's what's going on there. Gotcha. And and so like Roland, like as a person who like sort of starts when this like has sort of a freak out moment when that goes off, like it's both his gunslinger instinct and also this sort of like, creepy oil patch area at night that has these weird noises going on that sort of put both of them at edge it just makes you feel like like uh, they're kids again because i don't know about you but i totally had these kind of experiences where you would go as a teenager with and go somewhere creepy and explore it, it definitely called back a lot of those memories for me oh yeah we had a house that had a tree growing through the middle of it we had an old condemned VA hospital that was also a tuberculosis ward during one of the wars. And so it was supposed to be super haunted that we would go and you had to climb over this. You had to sneak up there and then climb up this huge hill. And then there was like all these like housing and abandoned pools and then the old hospital itself. It was really creepy. I always wanted to walk through the like abandoned plains in the desert and see that. But uh, anyway, back on course. So, um, so basically, uh, they sort of talk back and forth, and like Susan explains to Roland that none of this stuff has really been used for a while. Like they're kind of wandering around, and uh, they're like stepping through uh, like wired fences. And Roland points out, like, look at that! There's some porcelain up there. 
And, and the porcelain, it turns out, you know, I don't know if it's an electric fence or if it's just power cables that are running across the mm-hmm. tops of these um, uh, power poles. Uh, but underneath of that is a pipe. And she's like, oh, yeah, this has been abandoned for a long time. And Roland, like, sticks her uh, sticks his hand in. And Susan has this, like, sort of freak out moment. You're like, what if there's biting spiders I mean, in there? I, told, I have never stuck. felt more Susan identified in my life. Yes. Mm, spiders. And, like, from the, the guy's perspective, he just sticks his hand in and finds uh, oil that's actually in this Ooh, in this uh, tube and it's like well wait a minute what's what's going on with this and like the oil leads off into a direction and and they look over and see this sort of um pool like not quite like a pool but more like a almost like oil slick where birds and other creatures just like flown in and walked in and then slowly gotten completely coated and stuck and then died a slow painful death like you see on those horrible environmental spills uh in the ocean that make you sad about seals and penguins and all yeah i know i totally thought i was like save the birds get out the dawn let's scrub them up and set them free and so they they see that if i remember correctly they get a little heated again and there's uh, multiple makeout sessions throughout this and the as they start to make out uh, for the gazillionth time um, we cut back to uh, Rhea, <laughs> and I believe this is where I jumped ahead earlier, mm-hmm. uh, where Susan like is like, stop spying on us. Yeah, she senses someone watching. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so this is where we like find out that maybe Susan has some of the touch as well. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what we think this means, like why she was able to sense it was it that she has some of the touch is it or is it caw intervening you know like uh, maybe but like so okay now here's my theory uh if the if the ball that she's looking into is sucking some of her life out mm. it's also probably like i, I don't know want to get too crazy but astral projecting her oh to that point interesting and so if we go to the astral projection theory of psychic powers in all of these um uh psychic thrillers if someone astral projects and there's another psychic around they sense it oh interesting yeah 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 yeah. that could be and so like how else would the ball be able to like steal her essence and give her the sight to these places then sort of like not just looking into the ball but maybe like being projected out to those points that's interesting i hadn't thought of that that is interesting i I definitely have questions about how this ball works and and i i i am open to all theories that was a stretch for me but i definitely think that she has like the powers of all three of those like she's the captain planet (laughs) yeah and she means the heart yeah exactly there you go (laughs) um i mean i do i kind of when i think about the thinny and how it has kind of agency it makes me wonder how magic works in this world because if you remember the first time she looks at the ball it's not like she picks something for it to look at it picks something to look at and we don't know if the ball is following susan and roland because she's curious about susan or if the ball is selecting what she watches and if that's the case is the ball picking it is someone else pulling the ball's string what does the ball want what is the ball doing it just made me wonder 
how it all works. I don't have any theories. I'm just very, very curious. <laughs> I, I don't really know either. Uh, to be honest, like it's an ancillary prop in this. Um, it's this it's Chekhov's <laughs> like so. Ball, you but... have to basically be imaginative as to what you think Stephen King thought I, he I was don't know. doing. It, it feels so deliberate. I mean, is it just a plot device? Or well, okay. So if you're Stephen King and you're like you're writing this section. I have a witch check. Okay, fine. Um, all right. Well, witches have crystal balls. Let's give her a crystal ball check. They have a black cat. Well, this is a muty world, so we're going to have a mutated cat. Uh, maybe they're snaky because, you know, witch, why not? And so maybe we're thinking about it way too hard, and the crystal ball is just that, a crystal ball that Rhea has, as opposed to being, in my my world, in theory, a alien artifact that also... <laughs> Is sucking the life out of her while also astral projecting her into the area. <laughs> uh, I, I may have like chosen too many complicated threads to put into I this mean, one thing. But that's but... half the fun. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Is but... anybody out, listeners? What do you think? This is what I should have asked in the Facebook group. Is like, how the hell does this ball work? Why? Yeah, do, I, why I is do Susan able to sense it, but Roland isn't? I mean, I know that Roland doesn't think of himself as being someone who has the touch, right? Well, so... he has a different type of touch. Yeah. Like... He has the instinct of, like, pulling his gun and, like, shooting with his heart. Yeah. Um, whereas Susan, like, and, and maybe it's a boy-girl thing, like, the emotional sense versus, and, like, Rhea is pretty evil. And, and I've I said this earlier, but basically, she's sort of, like, cackling over the ball, like, oh, yeah, she sleeps with Roland, something bad's going to happen. Or if she sleeps with Thor and something bad's going to happen. So either way, <laughs> I win. And, like, uh, and then when Susan shouts her down and the ball goes dark, uh, at first, she's, like, upset yeah. and angry that Susan could do that to her and turn the thing off and mm -hmm. ruin her fun. But then she sort of realizes what state that Susan's life is going to be in regardless. And it's basically back to our game of castles where uh, Rhea has played it in such a way that no matter what, Rhea gets what she wants, uh, disaster in Susan's life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those, again, ticking clocks, right? Like, did you forget mm -hmm. about this one? Because Rhea didn't, you know, she's planted some kind of seed and Roland may end up being the one to reap it. <sighs> so then Roland's kind of confused that uh, Susan is basically like shouted down this mysterious other. And so then Susan has to backtrack and explain Rhea. And so she sort of tells the entire story of the proving except for <laughs> leaving out the more uh, feminine and close Closely intimate yeah. bits. She doesn't need to and, tell about the finger on the butt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, he doesn't need to know about that. That's fine. Whatever. Um, and so after explaining that, they like continue to follow this pipe and suddenly realize that there's these old tankers that are missing from the oil field and that they were made of a material that didn't rust. And at first they speculate as they're looking that uh, maybe somebody hauled them off for, for water storage, but that's unlikely because uh, people sort of have a, a bit of, um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, they, they sort of believe that there's something wrong with that area and taking stuff from it, you know, could lead to doom and gloom. Uh, so they're talking about that. They wander in and they find these tankers. And lo and behold, the old tires that were rubber and probably wasted away are gone. And now these have brand new sort of like 
crude, um, you know, turn turn of the century wagon wheels on them mm-hmm. with like uh, metal hubs and and wooden outlays. And Roland starts to investigate the ground and realizes that um, they had drug those over there. And Susan notices that some of the bushes and the trees in the area have been recently chopped. Mm-hmm. And you can see that they tried to cover the tracks up. They didn't do very well. And Roland, like, looks down and says, oh, that's so-and-so's footprint. <laughs> and Susan stares at him for a second. And he explains, well, no, no, I'm not... I'm not a conjurer. I don't have any secret powers. Um, I just noticed that he walks a certain way and it's, it's just trail craft that I noticed that that particular footprint and step is the step of this particular person. And that's how I, I spotted that. And, and all of a sudden, all the things start to come together because um, Susan remembers the fact that, she was in the blacksmith shop earlier and he was doing quite prosperous, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which means and, and she realizes that this work, the craftsmanship of this work is probably only likely to have occurred by this one craftsman in town because he's probably the only one capable of doing this kind of fine detail. Mm-hmm. And that basically opens up the can of worms to explain all of the stuff that is starting to go on in this area we're finally getting some dang old details it's been like a little piece here a little piece there a little piece here and you know like we finally can start putting some of these disparate pieces here roland is able to put some that we've already put together together but Mm -hmm. added some new details for us like the fact that now we know why the guys were what the guys were hiding the fuel tankers for we find out that apparently Farson has found some war machines. And so that he thinks that he's going to be able to refine the oil some way. And as we, as the audience know, he's in cahoots with Randall flag. So of course he can, right? Of course he's going to know how to do this. Um, We also now kind of have an idea of why this Latigo guy that got brought up by the big coffin hunters is on the way, you know, so we can add that to our list of ticking clocks. And then also, like you said, Susan now recognizes why Hookie's shop is looking so spiffy and why he wasn't sweating her for payment because he's already getting paid because he's in on the conspiracy. And Mm -hmm. while she may not think Hart is a part of this conspiracy, it's still further evidence that something is going on. And for her, this is all going to be viewed through the perspective of whether or not her father was murdered. And every single time that the, the, the conspiracy and the, you know, how widespread the conspiracy is in, in her, is in her town. Every time she gets evidence of that, it, it's further reason why she does not have to stick to her promise. I think this allows her more and more room to not feel like it's against her honor to break her promise. If everybody's in on this conspiracy that led to the murder of her father, she doesn't owe them jack shit. And so even though she's not saying this out loud, I feel like as we close up, I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but as we close out this chapter and she's just kind of like, if you love me, love me. <laughs> she would not have been able to feel that, say that as freely early on, uh, except for that, wh- like everything is confirming the fact that there's something really sick happening in this town and it probably resulted in her father's murder. <laughs> yeah. I, this is basically like the big comeuppance where their minds are blown by the fact that all these things are going on Yeah, and they suspected it, but now there is no suspecting Roland even like goes on to explain to her what Farson may be up to and what everybody's thinking about. And then they sort of have this like love moment Mm -hmm. where uh, they're like holding each other and 
she sort of um, pulls away and infers that Roland is is feeling a certain way and that she feels the shame again of their relationship mm-hmm. and what she has to do with Thorin and sort of harkens back to something Roland said um, previously in a, in a meeting about um, her, you know, basically not wanting her to go with any other man. Yeah. And she like almost basically assumes all of these things into what Roland's quiet. She's um, projecting big time. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Roland's just quietly holding her and, and what we find out later, crying on her shoulder. Yes. But she totally missed it in the moment and sort of like storms off in it in a heat of of hurt and anger. And and then afterwards rethinks the moment and realizes that Roland was crying on her shoulder just yeah. as hurt and sad and broken by this as she is. Mm-hmm. And also that he did not say the things that she inferred him saying. Yeah. And, and so then she feels a little bit better uh, about their last encounter. Yeah. I feel sad for her because, you know, like you said, she's totally projecting, but what it tells you is that in her heart, she's feeling a lot of shame around this. And I totally get it. Like on one hand, she's like, he won't take me used but I didn't know him when I made this agreement. It's so unfair. And it's also like super sexist, but whatever. But I do like that we find out that that's not only does she realize belatedly, that's not true. We know that's not true because we, we know that Roland for all of his, like, I'm trying to protect you and draw you in at the same time. He, he makes this decision when he's, when he declines her offer of the sweet loving Mm -hmm. because he's trying to protect her. He is old. And he's like, I'd rather you hate me and think I'm, a prude or whatever then put you in further danger and i feel like i've had some issues with some choices and motivations that roland's making in this book i think it's it's some of the things that he's doing are really frustrating because they feel like a teen they feel like a real teenager decision you know and we want roland to be you know make all the right choices and because we know it's gonna well, cost I, susan her life but at the same time this is the moment where he shows some real maturity and i'm like okay that that's good it's the overdramatic teen, yeah. like, for your honor. Yeah. We actually cut from this to Roland dramatically teenage eggs riding his horse around, <laughs> like, town out in the hinterland. Just straight like, blue balling it all over town. Yep, just brooding over this situation <laughs> and, like, discussing internally the stuff that you were talking about. Yeah. And then finally, uh, we get away from the lovey-dovey to the point where Roland hears someone riding fiercely. Uh, uh into town and he ducks and hides and takes a look and sure enough it's it's depave coming back into town with the information yeah. that he's gathered from this old man that he offed after offering him some lead yeah yeah i mean here they are they've uncovered this huge conspiracy he now knows that they've got this oil like i mean this is big shit that happened in this mm-hmm. section and still even in this moment Roland cannot stop thinking about Susan. He like can't think about the problem at hand long enough to kind of fully process it because he's constantly distracted with thoughts of Susan. You know, it's not great. <laughs> it's not great, Deej. It's not great. Um, but I do love the way this chapter ends with the pape just like, like uh, you know, 
bat out of hell racing into town with this information with this absolute truth bomb and you know i've talked a lot about ticking clocks this is the last one of the section and just i was thinking about how the sounds of those like rushing hoofbeats like sound like the sound like a clock speeding up right like that that the drum beat of those hoofs is the drum beat of that ticking clock just like as they're heading into the who knows what? I know they're all playing castles and everybody's trying to hide behind, you know, subterfuge. But, like, it can't go on much longer at this point, right? Because Jonas now knows who Roland is. Jonas now knows more about Roland than Susan does. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, it's going to uh, be... I'm, like, I'm of two minds. Like, on one hand, I'm, like, so excited to see where this goes. And on the other hand, I'm, like, dreading to see where it goes. Because... The first time I read this book, I don't think I really connected with Susan that much. And I like I like I said, I, I was kind of like frustrated because I wanted them to get to the Dark Tower. Um, whereas this time, because we're going through it slowly, I've had to really absorb everything. And now I I feel like I'm going to have a harder time when we get to the end of this book. I honestly <laughs> normally like uh, when I went through this the first time, kind of ignored a lot of the lovey-dovey yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, Me too. You know, Stephen King's descriptions are... A little weird and old manny vivid. And we all <laughs> and, know I I mean I've talked about this a million times, like love stories do not really speak to me, but yeah. this one is making me care. It's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and because also like the stuff with uh Romeo and Juliet, I hadn't put that together yeah. before. And so when you add those extra layers, suddenly what goes from a basic uh, I love you, you love me, but there's someone else that I'm promised to uh -huh. turns into like a much more epic thing when you hang it from that particular oh, Christmas yeah. tree. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and so <laughs> this all, it gathered a lot more meaning for me when you told me that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I was digging that out with like the Orange Grove and some of the other bits, but now it's even more so because now it's like the classic tragedy. Yeah. And it, when you ha you start with that, well, then even without any kind of spoilers, you know that no matter what happens, this isn't gonna this yeah. isn't gonna end well. This ain't Midsummer Night's Dream, all right? Okay, which I think had a good ending. I don't remember. I read it a long time ago. I mean, except for they like don't they kidnap a kid and take him to the fairy world, and then maybe. All right, DJ, uh, what did you think of this chapter overall? You know, overall, uh, not too bad. Um, <laughs> we definitely bit off more than we could chew, and Lessons there's a lot of learned. stuff. Lessons were learned. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, sort of I know it happens in little snippets that I kind of just blended into one big chunk. That's OK. That's OK. And when Stephen King starts breaking these into little pieces and bouncing about, it's really hard for me to keep a real consistent thread of what's going on. And so I enjoy it. But I also <laughs> am uh am completely turned around sometimes at which point what happens because it's so so similar and, and different yeah, at the same time yeah uh, I, I enjoy it it's just a lot of back talking forth. about it becomes really tough yeah yeah fair enough yeah i like this chapter i like this chapter a lot i really like the way that now all the pieces are starting to come together both plot wise and understanding more about how the cons what the conspiracy is but also all of our sort of lingering outside of the central part 
threats mm-hmm. kind of slowly drawing together. Like I'm starting to see how this is all coming together. There's still some outliers still out there to come, but I, I feel like we are entering into the phase where everything is starting to come to the like denouement, right? So that, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. I also really loved the the creepy setting of the sicko oil field. And there was, and oh, the thinning was really, really great. There was a really, a lot of, because we covered so much, it's kind of, we're losing, some of it gets lost in the shuffle, but there's a handful of really great set pieces in here that were very cinematic and very creepy and, you know, lots of boner talk. How can you not like this chapter? It's great. <laughs> I mean, I would have preferred more conspiracy unveiling and less boner unveiling. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but you take, you, you take what you get. Yeah. Yeah. And you take, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this episode has run a little long and we didn't really get any answers on our question so let's go ahead i'm uh i will let you know what we're going to read for the next chapter and then wrap up for this episode okay plan for next episode is we're going to do one chapter this time Yay. <laughs> all right all right i learned my lesson all right wizard and glass part two season chapter 10 bird and bear and hare and fish so that's what we will be covering on the next episode if you are playing along with us. There, as far as I saw, no connections to Stephen King Universe. Although there was one little thing. I don't know that it was a connection, but it reminded me of something, which was when they first got to the Thinny, they describe how it's like covered and impassable because of brush. Mm-hmm. And then there's like this sort of mystical thing calling out to them beyond the brush. It reminded me a little bit of pet cemetery, right? Cause there's the, there's the safe pet cemetery, but you're never supposed to go past the brush because the other side is the one where the Micmac native American have their burial ground where the ground has gone sour and the Wendigo and all that jazz. So mm-hmm. I don't know that it was a specific reference, but it made me think of it. But other than that, I didn't have any connections and there is no Stephen King news this week. I mean, they're gearing up for the release of The Stand, but even that, not really any major news coming out on that front. And we did not get any new emails this week, but if you want to get in touch with us, you can always drop us a line at rachelzombiegirls.com or come over to the Cast of Cough Facebook group and interact with us directly there. And as for the question, we always love to post a question there before every chapter. But like I said at the beginning of the show, kind of blew it on this one. So <laughs> the question is currently there and we're going to save it for the next episode. We may ask another one in addition to it. We'll see. We'll play it by ear. But you should definitely head over there and give your answer to the question about, well, you'll see if you go to the Facebook group. All right, DJ, where can they find you on the internet if this, these two hours of your sweet voice were not enough? Uh, you can swing over to deadliner.com and check out that podcast uh, where we do one every two weeks, basically just getting back together the old gang to talk yeah. about stuff. Um, otherwise, uh, occasionally some stuff will pop up on Muffin Spank on Etsy if you want to check out some of the stuff i'm shucking on the internet uh and of course here and that's about it really i stay pretty quiet these days on the interwebs but uh rachel what about you well if you want more of me you can find me on the zombie girls podcast where we talk about horror movies you can head over to the more deadly podcast where we talk about horror movies directed by women uh of course there is the stream queens where we talk about horror movies that are direct uh, that you can watch on the internet and then obviously more you can go listen to old episodes of the cast of Kai. i mean i guess <laughs> and i don't know if that episode with me on dead lantern is out yet but potentially you could find me there as well for that episode but i think that's about it so dj 
will do me a solid and take us out. All right, everyone, for this this ending, I'd like you to close your eyes and imagine me taking my finger and sticking it into the dirt and then placing a seed in there and then watering it and the seed throbbing and growing into a tall, hard member that is the cast of Kaga Knight. <laughs> oh, my God. I was like, where is this going? Oh, amazing. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Bye.